Welcome to the Harvard Club of Boston. My name is uh, Matt Haggerty. I'm president of the club. And uh, we're delighted that you could be here for a presentation on the future of uh, AI-powered driverless banking. And uh, I'm sure our guest presenters are going to uh, actually inform us what the driverless uh, means in this context. But uh, uh, they uh, both co-founded a company called Envel, which is located here in Boston. Now, it's Harvard-founded and MIT-funded, and usually startups are the other way around, right? The MIT people come up mm -hmm. with the ideas, and uh, Harvard then throws the money at them. So you, you mm -hmm. have a, a unique model here. But uh, Envel's primary goal is to put money back into the hands of its customers, enabling a new generation to rise above credit dependency and uh, the growing debt crisis. So. Uh, Steve LaRue, uh, to my far left, is the founder and CEO of Envel. And uh, Mr. Dmitry Atomanov, uh, to my immediate left, is uh, also the co-founder and uh, chief technology officer of, uh, of Envel. Uh, Dmitry is also a Harvard Club member. So uh, we're very grateful to have them both here. Stephen is, was educated in the, in the uh, UK including the uh, Said School of Business in London, which is uh, probably one of the most renowned fintech uh, uh, schools in, in the world. He's also received certifications at MIT and Harvard in uh, data science and uh, strategic management. And before uh, founding Envel, Stephen was involved with uh, a CTO of GuideStar and head of product innovation of a big company in the UK associated uh, British foods. But he sits on uh, some very significant uh, uh, advisory boards like London-based uh, the Lafferty Group. And uh, next month, you're actually, Stephen, going to be presenting to the American Bankers Conference on uh, Banking 3.0 AI-driven banking. So uh, we look forward to that. We also learned that uh, Stephen's a relative of the uh, 19th century poet John Keats. Uh, so John, so you're already doing better than your forebear because he passed away at the age of 25. So uh, you're, you're going quite strong at this point. But I think every uh, honors student uh, read in, in, uh, in their English class, Ode to a Grecian Urn, uh, Ode to a Nightingale. That was uh, John Keats. Uh, so Dimitri, uh, again, member of the Harvard Club, he received his bachelor's at uh, Waterloo University in, in Canada, which is in Ontario, right outside of Kitchener. And he went on to uh, earn his Master of Liberal Arts here at uh, the University in Business Administration and Management. And uh, he has over a decade of experience uh, building enterprise-grade uh, software solutions for the banking, insurance, and uh, uh, professional services uh, industry. So he's accomplished a lot in his young age. He's also a contributing CTO to the Forbes Technology Council. Mm -hmm. And from what I understand, it's, uh, it's harder to get on that CTO council than it is to get into Harvard. So I give you a lot of credit there, uh, Dimitri. But uh, other key executives at Envel uh, include their CFO, uh, Ted Hill is a former CFO at uh, Santander. Uh, Craig Bond, who's going to be presenting with you at the American Bankers, uh, he's the uh, non-executive chairman at uh, Envel. He uh, 
served at Barclays uh, Africa Group, and uh, Mike Baxter is a, a partner at Bain, is also on your uh, board. So tonight, uh, among the areas we're going to uh, focus on, uh, the growth of uh, the fintech industry here in Boston, uh, emerging AI-based uh, technologies, uh, the changing tastes of uh, millennials and Generation Z, and uh, creating new uh, value in banking services uh, with the use of uh, artificial intelligence. So without further ado, I'll hand it over to uh, Dimitri and Steve. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much. Let's see, can you? This is the actual switch, right? Excellent. I've learned that if you get too close to the other microphone, that it'll actually give you a little bit of feedback, so you have to slink at it gently to grab the remote. Um, first, I'd like to thank everybody here for coming, because I know that uh, this is a Thursday. How about this? No, better, worse? All right, excellent. First of all, thank you everyone for coming, because I know this is a Thursday night, and you probably had a very difficult uh, day at work. And I appreciate that you all came and decided to spend some time to learn a little bit more about uh, this strategic direction that Steve and I are taking in the fintech industry. And in return, I'm really hoping that you'll enjoy our presentation and we'll deliver a little bit of value and, and you'll be able to learn a few things that we have learned in our journey. And maybe that'll be also actually valuable in the, somehow in your career or just for a general curiosity. Um, I wanted to go over a little bit about our agenda and what we're going to talk about. Uh, first, even though I'm the CTO, I, I'm actually going to spend a, quite a bit of time talking about the people because the millennial generation and Generation Z are already impacting our country in very large ways and the demographic shift is going to only affect the banking industry in the future further and further and further. Uh, we'll talk about the challenges and some of the strengths of those, those generations and why they matter. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about how AI can actually respond to some of these challenges. And then finally, Steve will dive into the presentation in more detail about how Envil employs AI and then some of the successes and the outcomes that we have had. Um, so first off to start, um, I, actually don't like, I actually don't like the term millennials. And the reason why is because I was born in 1986 and my generation grew up with the internet when we were young kids. And we still remember a little bit of the old world and the old word being banks, for example, that had branches when uh, people would actually want to dress into nice clothes and go see their banker. And then we also remember the new world where everything went digital. To me, a millennial generation started much later when, you know, with folks that grew up with the internet from the very, very beginning and they only have known the digital world. And then Generation Z has not only known the internet, they live their entire life on the mobile phone. And actually, some of my colleagues their punishment towards their teenage you know, sons and daughters is to take away the phone or to turn off their Wi-Fi. And that will literally cause an emotional crisis because they will not know what to, how to live their life without that much digital guidance. At the same time, if we go and look at the FinTech perspective and we look at the spending habits, we look at the financial habits, those are also two very, very different generations. Um, the millennial generation didn't really learn how to save in part because their parents never really taught them. So the financial literacy rates were incredibly, incredibly bad. 
And the credit card companies did a lot of marketing and did a lot of market research to figure out how to actually target that lack of financial literacy. And that ended up majorly increasing the debt of the millennial generation. And then also, going, getting into college became kind of the, kind of the marker of success as, they were, as the millennials were told by their parents. As a result, the college debt skyrocketed because all the universities and all the colleges in the country just suddenly figured out that you can raise prices and they will still come. They just take out a bigger loan. And it turns out that an 18-year-old can't do any kind of a cost-benefit analysis for their degree, and so you end up with $120,000 biology degrees from mediocre universities. It's impossible to pay that back, and, but it's incredibly difficult to live with that loan. Generation Z is really interesting to me because they say that generations repeat the previous mistakes, uh, the mistakes of previous generations, but they're actually surprisingly smart. 17% of Gen Z at high school graduation have already began to save for retirement. Yeah, that's my facial expression right there. More than 20% of them had a savings account by age 10. They, you know, they remember the financial crisis as this visceral black hole during their childhood. And they're just like the Depression era children. They have very different attitudes towards money. So they have a very different understanding of you know, where money comes from. And also, that turns out that it can run out. And your family can go into a really negative financial situation. And you can have really negative emotions associated with that. That's a generation for whom that's visceral. And so they're very, very conservative, fiscally conservative. They actually have higher, higher savings rates than the millennial generation and in America as a whole. And that's actually surprising because the United States hasn't seen a generation like this for a very, very long time. If you go back to the, to the 2000s, to the credit card eras, you go back to the 90s, the 80s, the 70s, the 60s, it was all, it was, there just hasn't been a fiscally conservative generation for a long time, ever since the one that, that grew up during the Depression and then went off to fight World War II. And I think that's a really interesting phenomenon that a lot of banks are not really prepared for. Before we even get into AI, let's talk a little bit about the people that AI is gonna serve. Now, um, in my consulting practice in the past, I've done some consulting for retail banks in Massachusetts. And uh, in many ways, the banking industry as a whole in the US is very behind on technology. And I always wondered why that was the case, and it wasn't until I hit Mass and started consulting some of the smaller retail banks that I realized the reason. And they told me, well, Dimitri, you come to us with these digital strategies. You wanna go and engage the younger people, but after the financial crisis, all of the wealth in the country is in the generation that's 55 plus. They're not with the younger people. So why would we chase the people with no money if we can chase the people with money? And when my answer was, that seems like a really short-sighted strategy given that people's lives tend to move forward and they retire and eventually pass away and that younger generations would come up to fill that gap and the answer was, well, by that time, I'm going to get a job as an executive somewhere else. That's going to be somebody else's problem. I'm concerned with the next four years because that's what our financial plan is. And uh, that scratched, I ended up scratching my head a lot. But on the positive side, when I joined forces with Steve, a lot of the digital strategies that I had in my mind that I had previously proposed, I now knew that other banks were not interested in adopting. So all of a sudden, we had a competitive advantage that nobody else was looking to exploit, at least in the retail space. 
So I want to really emphasize the fact that the millennial and, and, and Gen Z generation also just expects a lot more. 20 years ago in the late 90s, people were afraid to buy something on the internet with their credit card. And you couldn't blame them because there were no safe credit card processing systems. But today, people buy stuff at Amazon online all the time. In fact, I even buy it on, you know, buy it on my smartphone. I don't even use a computer. And the people in, in Generation Z have grown up comfortably with the idea of digital services that follow you around, that know a lot about you, and can make decisions for you. Amazon, for example, offers stuff to me that I don't really need all the time, and I may end up buying it just because I want to anyhow. But we're going to get into how to avoid that in a little bit, once Steve talks a little bit about some of our, our bank strategy. So in terms of where millennials are heading financially, and this will take a little bit while to load. Um, if we step back from Gen Z, the millennial generation right now is, is about to comprise the largest segment of, of the workforce in the US. And they're in trouble. The majority of them have not shed their student loan debt in their 30s. It still continues to come down. They have difficulties in purchasing their first home, even though typically that's something you should have done back in your 20s if you go back 50 years, if you go back 100 years. And they're, they're not feeling financially confident because they were never really taught how to be financially secure. Right? How do you plan for the future? How do you do without today to be able to do more tomorrow? And maybe how you should structure your life strategy and make some of the better choices as a result of that. Because you may want to actually move to a cheaper city and get a different job versus having a higher paying job but in a city that's higher cost. A lot, of, a lot of folks were, not, you know, never, were never really taught that that's something that you should do. Or, go ahead. Good. So if I'm going to be kind of devil's advocate or at least contest the, the research that we see, the obviousness, it's kind of a painful topic. We talk about millennials and mismanagement of money, and it's kind of boring. We heard it loads of times, and obviously we need to know that. But then we need to also understand why. Now, there's a kind of behavioral element to that. Look around you. Well, there's nothing much you can see out there, but everything today is about buying, 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 buying. Uh, consumers are uh, pummeled with all sorts of products, uh, and the frequency of transactions has gone up significantly. So if you think about budgeting 20 or 30 years ago, it was a lot easier because clearly there wasn't as much to buy as there is today. Um, but along with peer pressure and you know, everything from you know, iTunes or Spotify or things on Amazon, it's really become unmanageable. And we just don't have the technology today, we should do, we don't have the technology today to manage that frequency to, to obviously make people feel a little bit easier about the way in which they spend their money. So that's part of the problem. And it's not necessarily the fault of a millennial, it's just we are in that transitionary phase where technology, at least at banks and budgeting, hasn't quite caught up with the frequency of transactions. That's correct. Now, now that I've made everybody really sad and feel bad for the millennial generation and Gen Z's fallout effects, um, so what can AI actually do? And I promise, in, I've seen two types of AI presentations. One that is overly technical and everybody gets really lost five minutes in, and the other one that's very hand-wavy and have these kinds of generic images and then you have no idea what the hell they're talking about or how, or how they're gonna accomplish any of it. So I have two technical slides and I have one of these slides because I felt obligated, given the culture of AI, that this type of slide should be here. 
Um, so how can AI actually address some of these challenges? And the answer actually lies in with data. So because the millennial and Gen Z uh, generations are digital natives, they also leave a very large digital footprint. It also means they're a lot more comfortable sharing some of their data that other generations would want to protect because they're afraid of getting their identity stolen or they don't have enough confidence in your safeguards, for example. In this case, um, what, a, what AI algorithms may be able to accomplish is actually not only uh, supervise the financial transactions of a particular person, but also learn from their habits and figure out what strategies that they could undertake to actually prevent some of the future overspending or to push people into new opportunities. Now, one of the things we've done at Enbull is we've actually uh, partnered with a, a behavioral economics professor at Harvard. And when we first approached him, he scratched his head for a while and said, you know, most companies approach me because they're interested in figuring out how do we get people to spend more and on our product. You're the first people that are asking me to use my research to get people to actually save their money. So I don't have an answer for you immediately. I'm going to have to think about it because this is new. This is one of the first technical slides, and um, I love it because what we've done is we actually analyzed the financial lives of 500 people. And uh, if you're not technical, you have no idea what the hell's going on here. But this is called the principal component analysis. And what we're trying to do is if we have a large crowd of people and we analyze a variety of different properties of their lives, can we actually establish different groups of people that are joined by their spending behavior? And also, can we then figure out if there is a social function Meaning that if these people knew about each other, right, would they be able to be influenced together or could they potentially also influence each other towards better financial habits? And uh, so the way that this graph works is we have several what are called proxy variables. And the nerd talk is, gonna, is right about to stop, I promise. But imagine if you had people that spent a lot of money less frequently and then you had a lot of people that spent very little money but every day both of them ended up being overspenders. But then people who spent reasonable amounts of money reasonably frequently would actually be the savers. And the fact that we're able to identify them by their financial uh, attributes, meaning by their spending behavior, one of the key insights we've learned is these people may actually come, across, come from different sections of society, meaning that your economic class didn't automatically predetermine if you were good with your financial habits or if you were bad. Those, those people potentially could come from anywhere. But if we're able to identify how they behave in, in terms of their financial spending, there's a lot of insight that you could, you could glean in terms of how you'd advise them or how you'd steer them towards better financial goals because they may also be influenced by different factors. And you can actually use algorithms to be able to build an individual profile for each one of these people and figure out what exactly is it that you could do to gently nudge them in a better direction. If I come too close, apparently that doesn't work. So we came up with a technology called spending DNA, which essentially allowed to see what, was this, what were the spending profiles for each particular customer and then how could you, how could you use behavioral economics to actually try and influence um, their particular spending behaviors. That's the second technical slide. 
And from there, otherwise, I'm going to hand off the, the clicker to Steve, and he'll tell you a little bit more about our actual practical technologies. You're going to use it. There you go. By all means. Good. So the way I tend to approach this is slightly different. So we've got, the, you know, obviously the, the technical understanding to some degree of... Um, that might be my... my technical understanding to some degree of what AI is, but of course it's still mythical to most people. And that's the biggest challenge. It's the kind of fear of the unknown, and even those in AI don't necessarily understand the breadth and the future, when it's going to happen, what it means, where the parameters are, and what the innovators are effectively doing with it. Um, but what we do know is, particularly in the world of banking and fintech, there are some real great applications that we can you know we can use to benefit the individual customer and if we think about ai in a, in a, in, in a sort of what is it replacing well in our case it's a, it's the digital banker it's replacing a banker that would traditionally be there to advise a customer but of course there aren't enough of them um, and as we are customers we are paying for people that don't necessarily serve us so the degree of inefficiency there and if we look at a business model traditional bank that relies very much on other revenue streams which don't necessarily satisfy the modern generation. So looking at it from an operational efficiency point of view, that's where AI really comes into play. And so you know, we've built something which involves a broader framework using AI. It's an evolution, it's, it's never ending. And of course, with the advancements of technology and the increase in resources, we should be able to you know, make something uh, really worthwhile in years to come. Um, but we've started simple. And I think one of the challenges that people have is, um, and I will say this and with, without apology, is that banking is quite boring. You know, and if we think about trying to educate any generation today uh, to manage the, the frequency of spend and tell them how they should save and pack away funds for emergency and invest in retirement funds, it's really, really quite uh, a painful thing to do. Uh, and of course, you know, we'd rather do things that are far more fun and uh, you know, play games on our phone. And, and the reality is that's what takes up a part of our day. So we just have to live with it. So education, in a way, doesn't really work. But we can use very clever mechanisms, partly to automate, but another to condition. And um, if we look at you know, other things that uh, we tend to use on our phones, there's a degree of reward for things that we do, whether it's games and we get points, or it's scoring against people and ranking. In banking, we don't have the the uh, we don't have a, the, the 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 same sort of experience. Everything's very rigid, and everything tells you how bad you were, and so it's rather painful to look at you know your transactions over the last month, and uh, and see how badly you've spent. And I think we all feel that we could have done a little bit better. The reality is there's no positive feedback there to encourage you to keep going and become better, and there's no technology currently that's alleviating all the things that you feel that a mundane that bank could probably do for you. But it's not necessarily in the interest of the incumbent bank to do it because of their other products that they want to sell you. And so, you know, we, we're kind of flipping the whole model on its head. And, you know, we, we can't just start with a normal business model and a normal banking structure and say we're going to superimpose AI on top of it and hope it works. We've reinvented everything. So the checking account, gone. You've now got four accounts. You know, we're, we're looking at it much like a CFO would manage a business. Capital, contingency, bills, 
spending. Spending is your kind of guilt-free pot. Customers have visibility of that. We handle the rest. And it's rather like going back home. You go back home, you give money, you know, your income to your parents, or at least they manage your, your funds, and they say to you know, the kids, uh, you know, here's some pocket money, blow them whatever you want. Those days were quite liberating because you didn't need to think about anything. You didn't think about a trust fund, you didn't think about an emergency because you knew you could, you could run home to you know, your parents and say, I need a bit more cash. That guilt-free spending element has been whipped away from us the minute we leave home. Now we're responsible for everything. Our jobs, our lifestyle, the frequency of transactions is just totally unmanageable. It's not a generational thing, it's a technology problem. We've approached things very differently, and obviously we've tried to push, no pun intended, the envelope of trying to do it, uh, because a lot of the banking systems at the moment don't really adhere to our kind of practice. Um, so that's, you know, we're using an automated approach to automate majority of the things that the customers would probably think their parents would do better or a CFO would do better rather than trying to manage it themselves. But we do have a component that provides feedback and enables them to do a little bit more. Um, we've gone with a brand that inspires, that's a little bit more fun because you know, banking is boring again. You want to make it uh, you know, more of an enjoyable experience. I can't say it's, it's completely fun and people run home and can't wait to use the app. Um, but the reality is you need people's attention if you're going to maintain their loyalty. And um, so if we look at the structure here, and I can't see this one here. Good. So I won't bore you through all the technicalities, but if we think about the traditional bank, you know, in, very simplistic manner, we think about that checking account. Uh, and there's a degree of management which involves us. How much would you like to save? You've got to manage your budget, your bills. It's tiring. It's boring. Nobody wants to do it. Most of us are not very good at it. Um, and then we've got to decide you know, how frequent we want a, you know, a deposit or a standing order going to our savings account. It's a lot of thought. It's not really an efficient strategy for the modern generation. And then the evolution is the, the kind of digital bank. Now, there are a few in the US, but there are obviously a lot more in Europe. We can learn from those experiences. But what I say is it's more of a copy and paste of what's going on. It's just minus the brick and mortar. So it's a little bit more profitable, potentially long term. It's not really doing much more from the customer. They want a lot more that they feel banks should be delivering. So we've scrapped all of that, and we've created this kind of firewall approach to spending. So it's a guidance, if you use an analogy, uh, the GPS of banking. It's providing you with real-time guidance, empowering you to be able to restrict spending in a way that's beneficial to you. But we handle all the savings. We handle contingency. We actually call it different things. So we call the capital, the savings account vault, because the connotations with savings aren't actually good. So we need to reinvent those. Um, the, the, uh, the emergency fund, uh, which we put aside in case you run out of your daily limit, uh, the bills, most banks know what bills are for that given month. We add a little bit for contingency, we handle that. So the minute your income comes into our bank, we've split it up immediately, understanding who you are, the way in which you spend your liabilities, and really you know, everything, your age and where you're going in life, um, and we present you with a daily limit. It's not perfect for everybody, but the majority of those that we, you know, we've obviously uh, spoken to feel that a daily limit, it's rather like pocket money, it, it uh, enables you to keep track on a daily basis of how you're actually spending. 
And so it's a hard, there is a hard and a soft limit. Hard limit is you go to your ATM machine, you can't withdraw more than we've decided, which may be $30, $40 per day. The soft limit may be that we, we uh, notify you that you've reached your daily limit and we advise you against going any further because it will damage your finances. There may be those that argue against that, but then the other option is you go into debt. So we're just providing you with you know, rational uh, application of managing your finances. If you obviously have a much larger income, then you'll have a much larger daily limit, and that's how it works. Um, so you know, the, there's a lot going on in real time, and there are three main components. It's the segmentation of, spend, of uh, income, it's the real-time analysis of spend. Um, so you know, if you go to Starbucks more times than you can afford in your year, we'll notify you it's probably not a good idea. Uh, but at least you have that information that empowers you to make that. I think most people will be surprised, even the low-income earners, how much they spend on things they can't actually afford. So the surveys that we've done, you know, some of them are spending 15 20% on fast food, uh, and they really don't have any surplus uh, income. They have to dig into credit cards, which is not something we encourage. We don't offer any form of credit. So there's no, no debt, no overdraft facility. We empower an individual to look after their own money and spend within their means in an effortless and fun way. Um, so this is the heart of our kind of AI component. It's the real-time management, it's the account optimization, it's the money management score, which is an alternative to the credit score. Bear in mind that there are many millions in this country who don't have a credit score, not recognized for their abilities of managing their own funds. And of course, when they go on to purchase a house, they're then stung with a high-interest high uh, loan uh, potentially, and uh, a large deposit, which is not a good start to life. And I think if you can recognize those at an early stage, something that lenders really want to get into, but they have no system at the moment other than Ultra FICO, which is, still involves credit scoring. What I'm going to do, so this, as you can see, patent pending stuff. You know, I wouldn't be able to tell you unless I had some sort of protection on it. Um, but let me take you through a little experience here. Um, See that? Good. So this is actually a simulation of uh, an individual customer, of course, all anonymized data. It's actually my transaction, so it makes it easier. And, um, and I'm going to pause that. So what we do is we have you know, a whole load of users of data here. And, um, and we run through our simulations how that's actually managed. So you're able to see effectively a time machine of how that works over a period of a month um, or two weeks and how users' funds are split into different accounts. And so I'm gonna play that back. Um, and what you'll see here, if you can see the mouse pointer, the daily limit's fixed there. Um, the amount spent for that given day is here, and the transaction's on the left. The re remainder is, is graded in what we call RAG, RAG format, which is red, amber, green. Um, if you have a significant amount of your funds left over that particular day, it's green. And if you don't have much left over, you dig into contingency, it's red. So that builds up a pattern that we can then analyze over time how well you're managing your money. And that informs the score amongst many other things. Um, but what we found is, of course, this is a desktop application. Nobody's going to use this as for our own purposes only. Um, but we do, have, um, we do have an application. And I'll show you that now.
So we want to make it fun and engaging. Um, and you're trying to, you know, apart from the fact that we're automating most of this, you do want to allow people to do a little bit more. And so it's got to be intuitive. It's got to be, uh, it's got to be, you know, degree of fun, a bit of risk taking uh, goes far. And if you're speaking to a generation, including myself, I'm a Gen Z wannabe, um, you're speaking to a generation that want to, want, want communication between something that's beneficial to them in the same way that they talk to their friends and they understand and do everything. And in fact, banking tends to be really formal and probably there's a, a, a uh, a, a problem with uh, you know a communication generally, but we have um, spending remainder for the day, some limits to tell you you've reached your limit for the day, um, notifications, but something that's a little bit more uh, fun and engaging, um, analytics, uh, your score, a ranking system that doesn't appeal to everybody, it allows people to opt in and measure their performance against their peers. Probably most people in this room wouldn't want to do that. Uh, but remember, when you early start to life, you really don't care. You want a little bit of fun. You want to know maybe who within your group uh, are those who are good at managing their funds. Um, and it's a bit of fun. You know, it's, it's, we don't take it too seriously. We enable people to see where they've actually spent. So using GPS coordinates, uh, they can track where they've done. Um, and then we have a humor setting. So the humor setting is, um, imagine you've got, you know, you've got your daily limit and your transactions have been denied. Now, the denied term you know, wherever you shop, it's quite an embarrassing thing, you know, experience. Go through, every one of us probably go red-faced. Uh, and this is gonna happen quite frequently if you're not too careful. So a message will pop up on the screen and it might say, if it's switched to a, a, a funny or, or a crude setting, you know, something like, um, you know, you're a loser, don't be a loser, you know, save, uh, be responsible, don't give in to, uh, to the industry and, you know, the way people, what do people think about you. So it's kind of reversing the polarity on you know, in the way people have depicted negative uh, responses from banks. And we need to kind of neutralize that. And it's a long-term thing. It's a bit like drink driving 30 years ago. If you were at the pub and, uh, and you said, look, I'm driving home. I can't drink. Everybody would look at you and say, hey, you're going to be joking. You know? uh, whereas today, if you're at the pub and, uh, and you know, everybody knows you're driving home, it seems generally is a responsible thing. I guess it depends where you are, but certainly in the UK. Um, and then we have a degree of control. So we have uh, economy mode, just like a car. You know, there's synergies between driverless banking and driverless cars. Um, we allow people to generally open up uh, the amount that they have available today to get a little bit more control. And then we have a, a, um, a mode there called beast mode, which allows them to have a little bit more fun, release a bit more cash for their day. They might go on holiday. So there's a bit of control there, uh, but it's not too much to compromise their finances. So we've got a team, um, and you know I won't bore you with everybody's resume, but it's um, we've got a good advisory board and a good team that's growing, and there are many that are not on there. Um, and you know it's it's people that generally think in a progressive, uh, can-do fashion, to tackle all of the challenges. There are lots of middlemen in this industry, and we have to kind of get around that. Um, and then we've got an advisory board that obviously provide us with the guidance that we need, and um, and that's kind of it. I shall sit down for questions. <laughs> All right, is my mic back on? I, um, on the subject of, of, of the uh, degree of humor you can turn on in the app, um, there's a story that I like to tell. I once worked for a CEO in New York City, 
that uh, came up with an idea for, uh, for Capital One that they should have ATMs that dispense muffins. And that every time you know, the customer takes out 50 bucks out of the ATM, you're rewarded with a muffin, you know, like right there. And for some reason, Capital One didn't think that was a bright idea, and we ended up losing the consulting contract. There's also another story of a hand coming out of a, an ATM to throttle the individual when they're withdrawing too much money. But that's just a nice comedy. I think you're upside down. Hmm? Oh, the name tag. Nobody's going to see it. So one, one quick question. Uh, how did you come up with Envel as the uh, company name? So, so Envel is actually short for envelopes. And the envelope system that our, uh, our four parents, if you like, uh, used many years ago to split their income. It's actually quite effective, very simple system. Um, and I think, you know, I've used it. I've simulated the same experience at a bank, although it's, everything tends to be manual. And, uh, and it works really effectively. But it's really segmenting one's income to, you know, things like holidays and uh, really knowing what you've got for a given period versus the kind of checking account that everything goes into one place and then you have to manage everything. Um, so it's short for envelope. And uh, when you were showing that uh, driverless banking AI 3.0 slide, which really uh, showed the, the, the core of the, uh, the platform. You had a, a bank in there, NBK or something like mm -hmm. that. So I, I think that's probably the most important aspect is being able to work with a bank. So could you describe how you forged that relationship and where you are with it? So in the US at the moment, um, so new banking licenses haven't been issued particularly to startups like this since 2008 financial crisis. Regulators are really nervous about doing anything. Maybe that benefits the customer, who knows? But the reality is the rest of the world's moved quite quickly and issued those sorts of licenses. We've had to rethink that process. So of course, it makes sense to work with, uh, unless you can come up with a $100 million reserve and, and buy a bank and do all that stuff, which obviously investors would be very upset to put their money there without a return. You may have to think you know, in, in, a, in a different way, and there are, uh, there are um, firms like Q2 that serve likes of Acorns that can actually help us, you know, move forward without having to worry about regulations. And you know, for us, you know, anything that involves same old, same old that we can't change, it's probably better to delegate to firms that know better than us. We want to focus on cutting edge new stuff that we can change. Unfortunately, regulation is not something you can change overnight. Uh, just, just to add to that, it's also worthwhile to partner with local banks. So we've discovered that um, out, of the, in, out of the local bank space, there are some that are really dinosaurs and will likely die out soon, but others that are really competing well for survival. And we want to be able, we want to be able to partner with them the best we can because a lot of them are really great at serving their communities. Um, I, I think that that's a, that's a type of bank that will probably continue to survive, and they're often very savvy with technology as well because they're really in touch with what their community wants. And they often come up with really creative products and services that are really unique to their particular local geographic space. You have a question? Hi. Um, yes. Um, I wonder if you could speak a bit to uh, some of the other types of um, financial functions, let's say. Um, for example, uh, a lot of people will use credit cards because they get cash back or bonuses. So to get a full picture of someone's financial 
information. You didn't have to have access to that data. Mm -hmm. If you're an app like Mint or something like that, you're tapped into all of that. In a sense, this resembles that, except that you're proactively offering advice and creating kind of uh, user experience that's meant to be interesting and useful and you know beyond showing the statistics and letting you figure out for yourself how to do it. Uh, I can see why you need the bank to have that restrictive aspect to it as well. Um, but banks also have functions like loans for you know buying a house or something like that. Um, also, people will want to invest their savings as well, at least at a certain point, they'll put it in the market. So I assume uh, this is none of this is news to you guys, obviously, and I'm wondering how those other functions fit into your long-term vision and how you think about them. Well, look, one has to you know understand um, that this isn't a kind of one-size-fits-all. You know, we have an emerging generation don't necessarily have credit cards and, uh, and access to all these kind of products, don't necessarily have a credit score. And we're talking 60, 80 million people and advancing. Um, I think we're focusing very much on the younger generation don't have the financial complexities and they could very well be for products later on. Not, probably not gonna talk about that today. But I think getting, building a, a stable framework, there are so many you know, providers of all sorts of different services. Um, we want to focus on the simplest aspect of managing uh, you know, low-income earners uh, and students. And I think building upon that, um, we can use, and we probably will use, services like Plaid that aggregate uh, other sources of uh, you know, the financial products that they may have to draw up a picture, and we've, we're doing that already. Um, but as you can appreciate, the degree of complexity as you move through the generation of, do, of using AI to analyze everything is actually quite difficult. Um, so we are issuing a bank account. You know, we have a debit card. In fact, we're running trials next month uh, within this region. Um, and we're containing it as much as we can within the young student population. Don't necessarily have access or even the need for these products right now. Um, but it will be an evolution. And I think uh, all these things will come. But I just want to add, you know, it, we're, we're going down the ethical path. The ethical path is we're not going to issue credit cards. Um, it's something I generally don't believe in because I think if you don't have the money, you probably shouldn't spend it. It's an old-fashioned approach. But if you think about the degree of debt in the modern world, consumer debt, over a trillion dollars worth of credit card debt is probably not going to be paid back. Um, over one and a half trillion dollars of student loans. There are some significant problems that nothing really at the moment is generally having an impact on. And I think adding more debt to that problem is not really going to make it go away. So we've got a very specific target at the moment. And it will probably evolve to do many other things, but we want to solve that problem first. But it's a good question. And uh, so Steve is British, so he's very polite and diplomatic. I became a US citizen last December. Uh, when we created this presentation, there are some things we just can't disclose right now. and. Uh, there, there is more to, there's more to our vision, including driving direct value to our customers. Uh, there's just some things that we prefer not to speak about at the moment, in part, in part because of some of the partnerships and some of the directions that we're currently taking. But everything you mentioned has been on our mind for a long time, and there are solutions we're going to come up with um, as things unfold and as the right time to reveal them comes along. I appreciate that you all are in stealth mode, and if you can't answer this question, don't worry about it. But uh, what about customer acquisition and retention after the com competition becomes a little bit more fierce, fierce around the edges? 
So I, I've actually touched upon this uh, earlier in my presentation. Um, there's a few digital strategies that, that we have that other banks have not adopted. Um, they may try to copy some of them, but they may have only varying degrees of success. Uh, our premise comes from the fact that we're targeting digital natives. And because of that, there's, there's certain things that we can do that other banks and, and their marketing departments are looking at, you know, we should spend more time on our Twitter account. Or, you know, we should spend some more on Facebook ads and reallocate the budget from half a million to one million. Um, but there are certain far more low-cost things you can do to actually genuinely engage the digital native generation. Um, I'll leave it at kind of that reasonably vague explanation. The retention piece. Now, that's actually a key challenge for all banks today. They don't talk about it. Because, um, look, I'm a realist, you know, I'm right? trying to get real information and see it for how it is rather than, you know, how others tell it. And uh, the biggest challenge at uh, even modern digital banks is what does retention actually mean? So for a digital bank in Europe, they will claim they have two or three million customers. What does that mean? They won't tell you what it means. What it is effectively is a download of an app, use it for five minutes. They're not really going to uh, leave the bank. It's not something people generally to do. They just won't use the service. And what is the difference between re real retention and kind of fake and pseudo-retention? Well, the real retention is it's your primary bank account. None of the banks are actually telling the public or anybody how many of those customers are primary users. In other words, uh, what, what is actually quite interesting when you sort of delve into this, an active customer in banking terms is a customer that's used the account within the last three months. And that's a shock to probably most people. What does that mean? That's totally useless. Um, so there are a lot of, lot of falsified figures going around, and obviously a great deal of investments being uh, channeled that way in view that they have millions of customers. But we want to focus on really driving value, and that's the key. So this is not about downloads. It's not about number of customers. It's about driving true value. And there's nothing better than people benefiting from a service and the reinforcement that they know they get, they're now doing better. They can see their goals. They can see the light at the end of the tunnel. We have lots of elements that focus around behavioral science that keep them entertained on that journey. And that's how you really, I mean, I've been involved in digital strategies in my time as well. Uh, that's how you really retain customers and get them to use it as your primary service. And I think uh, it's a big challenge uh, with the current business models that don't necessarily rely on improving the state of people's finances, but quite the opposite. Thank you very much. Pleasure. So just. Um, Jumping off from sure. kind of driving value for end users, mm -hmm. um, could you talk a little bit about the role of the data? So um, are you at, at a point it, where you're thinking about influencing behavior? So if there is a DNA that where you find somebody is a, a high value saver, um, and you, on the other end of the spectrum, you find somebody that's a real high spender. But that high spender wants to evolve into a high saver, and you, you pick that up in data. Is there a way that you're thinking about leveraging, let's say, influencers or coaches? Get away from the education, because I, I totally agree with what you said about the role of education. But are you thinking about how to use influencers and, and coaches to really move somebody from that spender over to a saver? Well, I think, you know, we have, 
many elements of our application, because that's the first thing people use, that are different. You know, they go against the grain of everything that you would normally find within an app. And one has to think about, uh, you know, who, this is why we have, this is why we engage with behavioral scientists and not necessarily traditional finance people. It's understanding the mind of the customer and what switches them on. We all have weaknesses, and we're generally driven in a way that's kind of in, instinctively led, which is, uh, you know, the dopamine feedback loop that involves purchasing something makes you feel better. And, then, you know, the interesting studies, I'm going to go off a little bit and come back. The interesting studies linked to those who are in debt are more likely to increase their debt than those who are not in debt because they're looking after something, they feel good about what they have. People that don't feel good about what they don't have don't mind to get in more debt. Um, and it's really a case of intercepting some of that thinking. And uh, the reason why we came up with a daily limit, which might sound a little bit constrictive for some people, believe me, it's actually a really good thing. The reason why we have that is because every day you wake up in the morning, suddenly you've got a fresh new wad of cash you can go and spend. Now that actually kicks in a little dopamine feedback, which makes you feel good. Um, nobody likes to look at how bad things were in the past, so we try and get rid of the negative element to traditional view, uh, projection of banking and try and influence people to turn their habits around and actually introduce social pressures, uh, ranking, scoring, and that sort of stuff. So for instance, if they spend probably more than they should and they're really maxing out and the whole spending DNA strip has gone red, um, it's likely that their money management score will go down, their ranking will go down. Uh, potentially, one day when we use uh, that sort of service and the degree of validation, it might leave them you know, in, a, in a position where they'd rethink it and view that they'd probably get better lending options if we were to offer that later down the line, if they were to improve the state of their finances. But you don't want to be in a position where you're waving a stick, but you're punishing uh, you want to enable them to turn things around really quickly, make them feel good, and every day is a new day. That's what we say. Um, so I think there are, there are more incentives, but it's an evolution. And I think this is where the behavioral, we're science-led rather than finance-led. It's continually evolving with the, with the users, with, rather than customers, the user's mind uh, in a way that they're using everything today, and it's probably going to change over the next five or ten years. I hope that answers your question somewhat. And um, just to add a little bit to it, so I come from an Eastern European family where debt is like the plague. So like my parents are like, debt, I'll give you debt. So I was very strongly influenced from early on never to acquire debt of any kind, sometimes to my own detriment. For example, when I went to school in Waterloo in Canada, the government gives you uh, interest-free student loans and some of my uh, classmates actually reinvested them and then paid back the loan, the, loan, the loan principal, and they ended up making some good money. Um, but then I met my wife, and I met her family who come out of the poverty loop in New Jersey. And then I realized just how different the mentality and the approach towards money is, you know, coming from a poor background versus someone who comes from a conservative, you know, um, let's put it, professional background. Um, you know, when, when, you get, when you get your paycheck on a Friday, woohoo, I'm rich. You know, no end to spending. Out of $2,000, I put $50 away, you know, and the rest can just go into the beer. Um, and the, that's, you know, that's part of the reason why we have the daily limit is because the, uh, these people have to actually process money on a daily basis. They, they can't frame, you know, two weeks or 30 days up ahead it, because they, they just don't think about things in such a manner. And when we talk about going from being a big spender towards being a saver, a lot of this is 
groups. A lot of this is reframing the problem in the way they think right now versus to how they've changed. And it's also figuring out what are the substitution incentives, right? Uh, because the emotional relationship with poverty is a really, really big one. Um, you know, uh, if you're really financially secure, uh, you know, uh, having a financial crisis is not really a big deal. There are worse crises that could happen in your life. Whereas if you're in poverty, a financial crisis could literally do you in. And because of that, the emotional relationship changes in really big ways. So then you have to think about, well, um, and it, it can have a negative, uh, it can have a, a feedback loop, right? So you feel bad about how much debt you're in, so you decide to go and buy a $500 pair of shoes. Now you're worse in debt, but you had like a little, you know, kick, and then, then you feel even worse than before. And, and, and that's, that's a behavioral problem, right? That's about what, how your reward system is structured and based on the priorities in life. And some of these things you can't influence, and some of these things you can. You just have to, you just have to be really empathetic from a scientific point of view and figuring out, you know, if there's a, if there's a path from, from having a, a me now reward type, of, reward type of thinking towards thinking for the future and building a financial shelter, what might that path look like for a particular person? And this is, and this is something where it's, it's um, you're really kind of taking on the financial planning industry directly that way. But this is where being scientifically driven and data driven really pays off because often you discover that there are things you just were not aware of or that are not obvious that you might discover that, you know, you, you, financial planners may know about, but they would never reveal because that might be for them be a competitive advantage in how they manage their relationships with their customers. So, so just very, very quickly, again, going back to the whole banking is boring stuff. Um, you've got to make it fun and compelling. Take all of the boring tasks out and keep people on track. And I think it's, you know, it's up to everybody to make their own decisions about what they do with their money. And we've, you know, we're not going to be the big brother and you know, whip them every time that they do something bad. Uh, but I think people want where they get real-time information. Whenever you're using social media, we get likes. That's a dopamine feedback loop. You get all sorts of dopamine on a daily basis, and you're almost addicted to it today because the, the frequency of everything goes around you. We want to introduce that frequency into our app and make it enjoyable, make it fun, and, and do a lot of the boring work for you uh, that ultimately you probably think the banks should do better. And that involves you know, affirmation and, and so on and so forth. Sorry. Thanks for the presentation. Uh, I'm not your target audience, but my son is, and I've been looking for a product where uh, I can sign up for him to start experience the financial system and getting some sort of financial responsibilities uh, with the money that he gets. Uh, so it's good to know that uh, there's this company, but uh, you're not launching until the end of 2019. I signed up for the early access. My question to you is, um, and I have many questions, but I will have to drive it and <laughs> hold some of these questions. My main, questions right my main question right now is, uh, is there a custodian account? He is, my son is 13. So yeah, we have all sorts of secrets that we'll tell you about later. But look, you know, focusing on Gen Z, it obviously dips into the kind of teenage spectrum that don't necessarily, uh, don't necessarily have uh, the right to set up a bank account, as you know, without, their, without guardian's permission, or parents or guardian or whatever. 
Um, and we're obviously looking at that because that's, that's a big market. That's an un untapped market. And there's really nothing at the moment, as you say, to help and guide those. And it, what we really try and do, and I use this analogy all the time, you know, you're at home, your parents manage your money. You don't have to worry about it. You leave home and then suddenly you're hit with all sorts of things you have to manage. It's a painful experience. You're not going to get it right. Not unless you're a, a kind of financial whiz and you love all this stuff. and You don't do anything else but manage your budget. And really, if you can start at home and, and receive the rewards as if you're earning an income and start to feel this and even build a score, by the time you leave home, you're conditioned in a way that it can actually help you later on in life. Um, and that's something we're looking at at the moment. And that'll probably come a little bit later. It's a, it's a credit card that is tied to chores and tasks that I give to him. When he meets those, mm -hmm. he makes money. Right. And when he saves his money, I pay him interest. How is that? What interest rate is that? 3%. 3%? Yeah. Well, when, when the parents become the bank uh, with, uh, with, a, with a revenue stream back to the child, it becomes a bit worrying. But look, you know, all of these things help. Uh, but we, we're not going to go down the credit card route. We feel there are enough companies doing that. Apple's just started that game as well. So, um, so yeah, we'll watch the space. So apologies. This is a little bit less about your specific application, more about your insight into this field as a whole. Absolutely. So you know, something we talk a lot about when we think about AI algorithms is like risk and bias that using them can introduce. And I would think if I were a traditional bank, I'm not too worried about this because I give you two accounts and then you can do whatever you want with them. And what ends up happening with your money 10, 20 years down the road is entirely your responsibility. But here, once you start using something that, you know, is an algorithm that tells people what to do with their money, does that influence the way you think about like the risk of your relationship with your customers at all? If, well, sorry. Um, I mean, yes, obviously. <laughs> um, and anytime you introduce any kind of a decision-making or, or, or an expert system, right, you're, 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 you're now kind of exposing yourself to being both a better service, but then also there will always be naysayers right, that, 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 may, that may have a, a bad experience, and you have to be aware that that may happen. Um, part of it is to try and deal with, with, with having a good customer service experience as well. Uh, part of it is in trying to make sure that people never feel out of control, um, that you know, if they don't like the direction where, where things are going, they always have the option to switch to, to a less aggressive mode um, or, or if they want to reprioritize re them to some degree. Um, you you do have to be really you do have to be really careful uh, when you're impacting people's money directly that you're always doing your due diligence and then you're always um, at the top of your game. Do you want to add I mean, something? So so um, so the other side of that is uh, look I understand, and and that's probably why the industry doesn't move forward because we're always worried about the negative press. Um, but you have to understand if if I could use the term the lesser of two evils this would probably be the better route, and you know. Looking at, uh, we all know about, I'm not going to bore you with the figures in, in the US that roughly half the population have almost no savings at all. One has to ask how much better, how much worse can it be? Now, what we're not doing is packing your money away in investments and advising you where you should put your money, whether it's Amazon stocks or, or, uh, or Apple stocks, or whatever it is. It's still there within your reach. It's just a matter of 
creating a filing system that enables you to pack a little bit away that's out of reach, but it's still yours. And then you, know, you ultimately have a decision how you're going to go and tap into that fund. We're not stopping you from doing it. Um, and we're not sending it off into, you know, in, in, into another uh, fintech service. Um, but it, you know, it's, it's guidance. It's a bit like you know, using a GPS system. How do you know that it takes you on the correct route? I suppose there could be all sorts of risks that it might take you down a dodgy street and something might happen to you. Um, but if we didn't take these risks, then we can't move the industry forward. And so, you know, whatever, whatever you face, I just don't see how the current banking system is benefiting a customer so much that we shouldn't try something new. And um, we've got to be prepared for the, you know, for negative press. That's just the way life is. Um, but as I said, it's as it's, it's risk-free as you can get given no lending um, and it's still within your reach. We're simply giving you a, a tool to be able to steer in a way that you can kind of predict uh, the next year, the next few months and years to come. Right, Stephen, Dimitri, could you uh, talk a little bit about your uh, launch plans for later this year? Sure. To the so extent I, that you can, of, of yes, course. Yes. Well, uh, um, you know, we've made no secret of it. If you go on the um, on uh, Google, you'll find lots of press releases about our intentions. Um, so latter part of this year, we're obviously running all sorts of trials at the moment, making sure that the system is uh, you know, squeaky clean of any bugs and uh, you know, people are receptive enough not to uh, launch prematurely. Uh, that involves a little bit of time um, and we have to go through all the compliance loops with our partners' banks, so uh, that can sometimes take, uh, you know, take time. Uh, but the intention is the latter part of this year and, uh, and then we'll think about the evolution of how we tap into uh, the kind of parent-child uh, component, but that involves a different cycle. Um, but do, you know, by all means, you know, I'm, we're not here selfishly just to promote our firm. I think this is a case of, uh, you know, a, co a collective uh, effort to do it, you know, to, to repair or even reinvent the banking system. And it's something that, you know, it's not a US only thing. We have intentions of going abroad, but it's really, you know, em em employing the, you know, innovative capability of everyone to go against the grain, don't just accept you know, the way the system is at the moment because you can change it. And you, know, you can use degree of diplomacy or pressures to do it, but actually we've, we've changed a lot. And it's surprising how much we've been able to do, and I think this is early days. Um, we are you know, building an AI framework that will evolve over time. Uh, we're not selfishly going to keep everything to ourselves, so we'll be working with FinTech partners going forward. Um, so that we can build more of a, a stable ecosystem for the user. Well, thank you very much. Let's uh, give it up for uh, Steve and Dimitri. Thank you. And as a token of the club's appreciation, we'd like to give you uh, both an honorarium. So there you go, young man, yeah, Stephen. Thank, thank you very much. So much. Let's uh, have another round for our friends here. Thank you. Uh, please feel free to uh, use the bar and uh, to uh, network. Uh, we'll be here for a while. Thanks.